The area of London around Lincoln's Inn Fields has been the home of England's lawyers and judges since the 14th century. The judiciary has considered the evidence and given its opinion on the great legal cases of the country, interpreting property law, civil law, media law, and far more. And in December 2021, a group of activists gathered outside in the drizzle to celebrate their day in court and the chance to be vindicated in an unlikely battle. Three plaintiffs, three members of the public, were taking on the UK's oil and gas authority, the UK's regulator for offshore fossil fuel extraction. They were arguing that the regulator was failing to take into account the full consequences of the licenses they were granting, and that the financial and environmental repercussions of those licenses were incompatible with the public good. The crowd chanted and sang their support, full of hope and optimism. They lost. But the question still hangs over the North Sea. Who do oil licenses benefit and how do we measure that benefit? And as we face the need to stop burning fossil fuels, what role do these licenses play? That's the topic for today's podcast. Welcome to Tides of Transformation, an oil story, a podcast from Intelligence Squared. I'm Helen Chersky. For most people over the past few decades, the oil industry has operated in relative invisibility. We bought its products, but we never really looked into how it all worked and why. But today, there are a lot of calls for the oil industry to change and perhaps to just disappear. But when you have an industry that's deeply woven into our communities, our economic policy, our energy use and the structure of our country, any change for the better requires a deep interrogation of what it is that we want to change. And that's what this podcast series is all about. Drawing on recent research undertaken with the support of the Economic and Social Research Council and with input from experts inside and outside the industry, we're going to be piecing together how the oil industry really works in order to examine how it needs to change. And in this episode, we're going to be focusing on licensing, perhaps the most powerful lever that the UK government has to control what happens in the North Sea. Joining me are our panellists for today, Gavin Bridge from the University of Durham, and Giza West-Kalnis, an economic anthropologist at the London School of Economics. Gavin and Giza have spent the past four years researching the UK oil sector as part of a project called Fraying Ties. And also joining us is Andy Samuel, the former head of the North Sea Transition Authority, and Catherine Howarth, the CEO of Share Action. So let's begin at the beginning. Why are we having a focus on licensing? To get a flavour of the current interest in this issue. Let's hear first from Gail Bradbrook, the co-founder of Extinction Rebellion, on the focus of activist groups on oil and gas licensing. Well, I think, first of all, the movements are trying to keep an attention on a very simple demand, actually, which is that there should be no new licenses for fossil fuels. We should be signing up to the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty and pulling out of the Energy Charter Treaty where fossil fuel companies can sue governments for climate-friendly policies. But, you know, in alignment with, you know, very mainstream voices like the International Energy Agency saying that we can't new licences, right? So we we have a focus on governments in that way. And each of the main political parties in the UK, apart from the Conservatives, as far as I know at the minute at least, have um, a policy around no new fossil fuel licences, although it's not necessarily yet in election manifestos. So that's one thing, is to keep the focus on what governments uh, can and can't not be doing in terms of enabling the sector to carry out its destruction. 
And it's not just the activists who have this point of view. The Climate Change Committee is an independent body set up to advise the UK government on tackling and preparing for climate change. And here's Lord Deben, its former chair. Well, I'm uh, wholly opposed to the uh, granting of further licences, particularly, really, the uh, ones for oil in the longer distance, because there is enough oil being produced in the world to meet all our requirements. It's being produced by a whole range of countries. So you're not landing yourself with dependence upon a particular country. But we've just got to realize that we really cannot go on taking more oil out. And Britain is in no position to try to help developing countries not to develop in oil, but to develop in renewables if we go on using new sources of oil. So it's a question of leadership, and I think that's why I said the British leadership has been lost, and this is one of the major areas of losing it. So, Gavin, we heard that opening scene at the start with activists outside the courts and this question of what happened in this court case. Why is that a good place to start this discussion about licensing? Well, I think what we're seeing in that example is how oil and gas licensing has become a front line in addressing the urgency of climate change. So that's a legal case that was brought by campaign groups against the regulator, and it's indicative of social demands that are being made on governments to move faster in decarbonisation and to not impose social and environmental harm. So the licence might be an obscure bit of bureaucracy, but it takes us all the way upstream to the point at which oil and gas first exit the earth, where they've been lying for millions of years, and then they start to circulate in the economy. And what we're seeing here then is a legal challenge to that long-standing policy of facilitating oil and gas extraction, specifically the charge that this policy is irrational and reckless in the context of climate emergency and that public money is being used to support activities that contribute to climate breakdown. Okay, well, let's lay, let's lay out some terms. So, uh, Giza, just tell us what licences we're talking about. What do they allow a company to do? So, as Gavin already alluded, no licences are instruments, if you like, in, in the first place, through which states control access to oil and gas resources, but also are able to impose certain obligations um, and expectations on license holders and, of course, collect taxes and revenues. And in the UK, the body that's responsible for managing and giving out licenses in the first place is the North Sea Transition Authority, um, which was previously called the Oil and Gas Authority. It's a kind of um, arm's length body, if you like. Um, it provides expertise and advice to government, especially um, now to the Department for Energy Security and, and Net Zero. So Andy, who's with us, was the chief executive of what the North Sea Transition Authority, which is, which is what the Oil and Gas Authority became. So just to start with now, Andy, how are licences currently awarded and, and how's that changed over time? So licenses can be awarded in two ways. The primary mechanism is through a, a licensing round. So the authority is currently administering the 33rd licensing round. There is also possibility for companies to apply for out-of-round licenses under specific circumstances, usually close to existing production hub. You know, what's the principle behind awarding these licenses? Is, is, is it that the government wants to make money or to guarantee some kind of security? Or what's the point of a license? What does it allow a government to do? So people often talk about the energy trilemma, 
And ultimately, what we all want is clean, affordable, and secure supplies. Before the paradigm shift, which I'm really excited about, but you know, the renewables revolution, which actually does solve that, it was done through oil and gas. And at the moment, 75% of the UK's energy need still regrettably comes from oil and gas. So the point of licenses is to get acreage into the hands of investors, companies who have the cap the capital to actually explore and then develop hydrocarbons. But as Lord Deben has said, in a world where we now have more than enough reserves, I think it's a very valid question how long that continues and, and how. It's not just about new licenses. Actually, the bulk of remaining resources to be developed are, are in existing licenses, and that often gets overlooked as well. And then there's also a question about, for ongoing production, how is that decarbonized? So as you can already start seeing, there's there's quite a few interrelated but quite complex aspects to this. But I, I personally feel that we need to go much faster. Uh, and actually, we should be talking about the opportunity that the North Sea brings with this new revolution of renewables, which is definitely the way forward. And Giza, this is question, part of the question of the court case was this, this question of public good. What is good for the society? How does that play into what the license is for and what they, what they should be for? Yeah, if I can just sort of step back maybe again to say what the license is about and how the license is really embedded in a whole set of obligations, but also stewardship expectations. And like all regulation, it's about avoiding harm, harm to the environment and bringing a social benefit or public good. That's what we want to see to come from these licenses, from giving out the licenses. The licenses anticipate a certain value, a potential value of resources that's buried in the subsoil, but it also then requires the license holders to invest in activities, in activities of exploration and drilling and, and, and then eventually production. And, and that's where the resource ownership really comes from. So it's not about kind of mapping out just a, a kind of straight plan for extraction, but also outlining a set of moral relations, if you like, between operators and the state and the broader British public with the aim of securing the flow of both investment and hydrocarbons. But I guess perhaps 30 or 40 years ago, licenses were seen entirely in those terms. It's about money and it's about resources. But now there's this question of climate change, right? So how... How do we deal with the question of public good in a world where what, you're, what is giving you money and resources is also causing problems somewhere else? Yeah, so the core objective of licensing has been and, and still is inscribed in the Petroleum Act. It's the, it's the maximization or, or maximizing economic recovery as it's, and that is the core objective also of the regulator, making sure that assets are in the right, right hands and that economic recovery is, is maximized. But more recently, this has been coupled with, with a second goal or kind of under, is now underpinned by the goal of, of supporting the Secretary of State in, in that broader ambition to bring about, to bring net zero. And so the two are kind of put next to each other. So maximizing economic recovery on the, on the one hand and net zero on the other. Catherine, so how, how does Share Action see this question of public good in where we have resources and money on one side and we have climate damage on the other? Where, where does the question of public good sit for you? Well, it's a fascinating question and absolutely at the heart of the movement that we're part of for responsible investment because on the one hand, we absolutely recognise that a 1.5 degrees world 
is certainly in the public benefit and also individually relevant to the lives of millions of people who put money every month out of a paycheck into a pension scheme. On the other hand, pension schemes see their obligation in quite narrow and old-fashioned terms around maximising portfolio returns. And there's tensions, just as you've just described, in terms of the maximising economic recovery being built into an act of parliament for, for oil and gas in the North Sea. Very similarly, there are these tensions where we've got old-fashioned legal duties for people that manage our pension funds that are in tension, if you like, with the need for radical transition and decarbonisation. And just in the last year, when we've seen the price of oil and gas since since the beginning of the Ukraine war kind of skyrocket and there were huge profits being made in oil and gas, and you could feel the tension right across the financial industry because both the banks and the uh, investment organisations like pension funds provide the capital that enables license holders to develop um, projects across the North Sea. And they themselves have many cases, both banks and and pension funds and asset management companies, they've made um, 1.5 degree commitments um, in quite a sort of, with a lot of fanfare a few years ago. And now they're feeling this huge tension between the upside short-term rewards of putting capital into oil and gas at this time and the kind of commitments they've made publicly and the and the tension between the long-term interests of of citizens who are also pension savers who want good retirement outcomes financially but don't want that on the basis of trashing our chances of achieving a just rapid transition and just to step away from licenses for a little second, licenses are kind of the government levers, I guess, to, to control what happens. But you, your organisation also works on putting direct pressure on the oil companies through shareholder activism. So what, how do shareholders play into the, the situation you just described? Well, shareholders are the owners of companies and the big shareholders in oil and gas companies, not all of them, because some of the, for example, the Saudi Arabian oil company and certain countries across the world have state-owned oil and gas companies. But many of the big players, certainly actors like BP and Shell, their largest investors are pension funds that act on behalf of millions of people. But shareholders have voting rights. Hugely significant voting rights, and they're unclear on how to use them right now. So there's a body of opinion within the investment community, particularly some of the more enlightened sort of pension funds with links to things like the university sector or the railways industry. So they're some of the more progressive funds that are pressing for very high ambition transition policies from the oil and gas sector and using their voting rights to bring that about. But at the same time, there's a big split within the investment community. And there are lots of shareholders in oil and gas companies who are all about get rich quick and take maximum advantage of a moment like the one we saw at the beginning of last year where oil prices skyrocket and suddenly you see a big wall of new capital from the investment community and from the banks moving into what they see as a short-term opportunity. Again, in the context of what everyone does understand now to be the the medium to long-term imperative of decarbonising. Well, let's let's get back to the, this question of of whether licensing is the right question to ask, because a word we've he- heard used a lot in this podcast series about the North Sea is mature, that it's a mature field. 
which means it's not brand new, it's largely exploited. So Andy, how much of the North Sea remains unlicensed? I mean, are there enough licenses left that we should even be worrying about this? So I, th I think that's a great question. And my view is licensing is symbolic. It's an area where leadership can be visibly demonstrated, but it's also a bit of a red herring. As I say, the bulk of the oil and gas in the North Sea in the UK side has already been produced. The majority of what's remaining is already in licensed acreage. What will come from unlicensed is is very small in, in, in the scheme of things. Not unimportant, some would argue, for example, in the Southern North Sea, there are some ready-to-go gas fields that could come on stream in a, in a couple of years and actually help on security of supply and potentially slightly alleviate prices. We don't set the price of oil and gas through UK production, but it has a very marginal effect. But from a security of supply, there's value there. But like I say, I think the, 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 the important thing that everyone should be focusing on is an orderly transition at the quickest possible pace. So let's come up with a, a plan, a transition plan. And actually investors on all sides of this energy equation need some kind of policy framework and stability so they can invest. Well, let's get on to the emissions. And um, Gavin, could you briefly describe a bit of terminology for us, which is that we're starting to hear in these discussions about scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions. So could you just set out what those actually are? Yeah, sure. So th this term, scope one, two, and three, refers to different sources of greenhouse gas emissions that are associated with a company or with an organisation. So scope one is direct emissions. These are the emissions you make directly in production. So if you're an oil producer in the North Sea, these are the emissions that come from the diesel generators or the gas turbines you use to lift and pump crude oil. Also, the emissions that are associated with venting or flaring of, of, of methane as part of operations. So it's scope two. These are indirect emissions, and these are typically from the purchase of electricity. So if you connected your offshore platform to a renewable source of low-carbon power, like an offshore wind turbine, that you can reduce your scope to emissions that way. So the prospect of wind-powered oil production is a direction of travel in the North Sea. And scope three, now scope three is the big one, because this is all other indirect emissions, which in the case of oil and gas is mainly what happens to the fate of the hydrocarbon molecules when they're combusted. So this is primarily a, a problem for oil and gas companies because they produce a product that's designed to be combusted. So if you added... One scope one, two, and three, you get so-called life cycle emissions. And just the final wrinkle on this, so if you took a barrel of oil, around 70, somewhere between 70 and 90% of those life cycle emissions are about scope three. So if you're only scope, counting scope one and two, you're missing three quarters of the problem. Okay, so let's get to why this matters in this context. So Andy, you brokered something that was called the North Sea Transition Deal. So Perhaps you could start just very quickly by telling us what that was. So that was a deal looking at the transition out to 2030 and beyond. And as part of that, industry agreed to reduce its scope one and two emissions successively. So by 2030, at least halving, we were actually calling when I was in the authority for more than 50%. They also agreed to invest 16 billion in the new technologies, carbon capture, storage, hydrogen, and have about 50% local content in that. So quite a broad-reaching transition deal, but what it didn't cover, regrettably in my opinion, was scope three. Now that could be covered. There is another mechanism called the climate compatibility checkpoint that at the time Bayes, now Desnes, introduced. 
And there was a consultation on what should be covered in that. That was around for new licensing, but again, in my view, should cover all parts of the activity, including field development approvals and existing licenses. There is scope still to introduce scope three into that. That is not something that would be, in my opinion, too hard to do. And it would be a very interesting development. So I think a lot of people would look at this and say, almost, and the reaction would almost be, how can you take this seriously? How can you take seriously regulating the emissions of an oil platform? Because obviously it's there to produce oil. <laughs> What's your response to that? Because I'm sure you've heard that a lot. I, well, I, I took it very seriously when I was heading up the NSTA and I personally met with all of the, the licensees, all, all the top 22, and went through their, their emissions reduction plans starting back in 2018. Since then, we actually managed to get industry to half flaring, which I think is, is a good achievement, and also reduce greenhouse g gas emissions from scope one and two by 20%. So these are not small gains. This is very significant. And if, if other industries achieved the same, the UK would be in a far better position than we currently are. But having said that, we were very clear they had to go further. I welcome it when people challenge and say, how can you, because it's not straightforward. I don't think anyone's got all the answers, but we need to move a lot quicker. Great. Well, with that in mind, let's listen to Mike Coffin, who's the head of oil, gas and mining at Carbon Tracker, which is an organisation that provides research with the aim of helping the energy sector transition away from fossil fuels. I think in some way we all have responsibility for the emissions that society generates. We have a fossil fuel based energy system and ultimately we are all sort of complicit in that. But but for the oil and gas producers, given a they're certainly responsible for their scope one and two emissions that their operational emissions. But of course, those are only 10 to 15% of the overall life cycle emissions. So while they may not be solely responsible, their business model is certainly reliant on those emissions being released. So their companies must take account of, of scope through emissions within emissions targets, ultimately failing to do so fails to link through to the finite limits of the carbon budget. Uh, but also failing to do so it means that then companies would not be planning for production declines as a result of demand substitution, but also the ever-growing risk to them of policy action around uh, on emissions. Ultimately, re uh, the demand for oil and gas is substituted by um, renewable electricity and, and battery electric vehicles. And what that does is, is ultimately reduce the demand for oil and gas companies' products. This is a fundamental risk to their business model. This is not just some ESG concern. The energy transition is a mainstream financial risk. And these companies must plan their business uh, models around that. And what's really important is they don't plan for the long term because oil and gas projects are planned predicated on revenues out for 20, 25 years, that companies must not be planning those projects based on short term, short term cyclicity and volatility in, in oil markets, as we're seeing right now, and particularly as the world responds to both COVID and, and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Catherine, we just heard in the quote there about financial risks. And I think risk is a very interesting word here because we're used to the idea of financial risk as being probabilities. There's a probability that if you invest in this market, it's going to go south or whatever it is. But actually, climate change also carries risks. And, and sometimes maybe risk is the wrong kind of word because it's not it's it's not it's a it's it's a very high probability. It's not a oh, maybe this will go wrong. It's a oh, it will very definitely go wrong. So what what does Share Action think the responsibilities of oil companies should be when it comes to, to climate change? So we, we have, along with other activist organisations, been heavily involved in pressing through shareholder activist strategies for 
large oil and gas companies to take responsibility for scope three emissions. They have naturally and obviously got responsibility, as Mike Coffin was just saying, for scope one and two. But there's been a huge fight to get the oil and gas companies to acknowledge responsibility for scope three and to build it into their transition planning. In other words, to take responsibility for the fact that once their goods are sold, we're using them in our cars, we're using them in our houses to um, uh, give us central heating, etc. And it's been a real struggle, but a really interesting one because that leadership from sort of citizen activist shareholders has actually acted as a really powerful nudge on the big institutional investors who've been quite slow to absorb this message, but many of whom are now doing so and are using the enormous power and the votes that they have, enormous voting power at the AGMs of oil and gas companies to, to kind of push this message and to really get commitments from companies. But we are seeing at the moment a really unfortunate wobble in the commitment of large institutional investors on this agenda. But it's not the only place where battles are being fought. So we're also pressing the banking sector. I and mean, the banking sector is critical to facilitate anything that happens on the ground in the oil and gas sector and in the fossil fuel industry. And bit by bit, the banks, again, because of sort of activist shareholders, small people that went and bought a few shares in HSBC, a few shares in Barclays in order to push uh, shareholder resolutions, again, have got the European banking sector to make some really good, strong commitments on what they will finance. And and the big demand there is that there'll be no new financing of new oil and gas. And many of the banks have made commitments on coal, but they're a bit reluctant to make the commitments on oil and gas. So you see a proliferation almost of of venues where these fights are being fought out. They're definitely being fought in the courts and in very kind of visible activism on the streets, but also critically in the financial arena where the same debates are playing out and and the same tensions between the short-term and the long-term need. So let's go back to the regulator and the control that they've got on whether there are... What what we do about licences. So Andy, I've got a kind of double sort of question for you, because you were arguing before that licenses also involve other things, the potential for hydrogen and carbon capture and other things that we could do with the seabed. So first of all, I think, do you think we should just stop licensing? But actually, there's a deeper question, which is, are all those other things kind of a distraction? Is it the case that the North Sea Transition Authority needs a more fundamental overhaul um, because it's there to maximise economic recovery, basically. Is it, is, it, is it starting from the wrong place? Or can or should, should we just stop licensing and use that tool? Or do we need reform? Fundamentally, we need a transition plan for the North Sea. And it needs to be integrated. There are too many players, too many regulators, and it's overly complex and isn't moving quick enough. So yes, ideally, we would overhaul the whole regulatory system. I think the whole Mer UK thing is dated. It, it was very interesting listening to Catherine as well. Maximized language is entirely wrong in, in the current context and should be abolished. It's it's unhelpful and it's unrealistic. So come up with a plan that does work. My personal view is perhaps less important because I think you've heard me, we should go to the citizens' assemblies. There are ways of getting buy-in. What's more important is actually getting the majority of people on board and then we can get into action. Actually, I don't like individuals with kind of wise views that aren't founded on real action and buy-in. We need change. We don't need 
more targets and ideas. We've got to get going on this. And we are in some areas and we have some real positives to build on. But yes, you, I think you can probably tell that I'm deeply concerned about the direction of travel. We've, everything we do has got to be compliant with one and a half degrees. It's still possible, but it's tenuous. We've reached tipping points. God knows what the future holds. So this is very serious and it's very disappointing when we, we hear about these wobbles, which is so short term because we're getting tsunamis coming down the road if we don't get on with this. So yes, I, I would go for big reform, and I think it'll be very interesting to see what the next government actually wants to do in that, that regard. And um, So Gavin, have you, I mean, you've been studying this. Have you got any comments on regulator overhaul and how this should all be structured? I think it, the, the point that Andy made there about the out-of-date quality of the, the mission on maximising economic recovery absolutely endorsed that point. I mean, maximising economic recovery is really about attracting investment into a basin to drive oil and gas production. And of course, it's possible to reduce the emissions from production through electrification and reducing venting, as we heard, but that leaves unaddressed the the fate of, of oil and gas when it's combusted. So what you've got in a policy like that, a strategy in a direction like that, which is embedded in the Petroleum Act, is really a policy that externalizes many of the economic costs that are associated with oil and gas, other than those around recovering it from, from, from the seabed. So it tends to see those oil and gas as commodities in isolation, and it doesn't consider the broader social and economic risks of continuing to extract and combust those products. And as we've heard from Catherine, many of those risks are uh, coming back into the financial sector. There, there was a point there that I would like to add to something that Catherine mentioned. Catherine's really clear on the possibilities there of engaged social, engaged share activism. But the key to making that work, of course, is that it's possible to, to buy a share, that there are shares. And many of the world's oil companies around the world are not, don't, uh, are not based on a model of public equities and share ownership. They're either state-owned or increasingly a number of them are in the hands of private equity. So what's interesting there is a model of share activism, which is, is making some really significant strides in engaging the public equity firms. Increasingly, the, num the type of operators that are involved in the North Sea don't actually fit that model. They're state-owned operators or they're private equity. So there is a question there about what other models of engagement might be necessary as the composition of the sector itself changes. Well, let's move on to something we haven't talked about much, which is the other main activity in some ways in the North Sea in the coming years, which is decommissioning the existing infrastructure. We, we've heard in the previous podcast that there are rigs and there are pipelines and you know, there's all this stuff which is sitting there currently being used. We don't want it to be left to rot. So decommissioning it safely is, is a big deal. So Giza, what what, what should decommissioning mean? How does this work in practice? Well, it, what it should mean, what does it mean? It's perhaps the question now. No, so decommissioning is about closing, about plugging, about abandoning wells. It's also about dismantling and, and then disposing of um, infrastructures and, and installations. And more recently, the emphasis has also been on recycling, repurposing, reusing existing oil and gas installations. And really, that's a, it's a huge task that maybe not everyone is aware of. It's not kind of in the public consciousness as, as much as it needs to be, perhaps, because there's also a large cost associated with that. Just to give you a sense a little bit of that scale, around 870 wells on the UK continental shelf, so that's the UK North Sea, which are currently suspended. There are over 2,000 
wells that are going to be decommissioned over the next decade alone. There are obviously thousands of tons of topsides and, and, and structures associated with that. Estimated cost of this is going to be 51 billion pounds. So what's interesting about decommissioning as well is, is that it has, of course, a fundamentally different logic from oil and gas production. So decommissioning is about the end. No, it's about demise. It's about finishing. It's about walking away from it, both individual assets, but also maybe in the long term, the industry as a whole, or at least a large part of the industry. So in some sense, then it unsettles really what has usually been the, the driver of this industry, which was about conjuring up potential. And this is about closing down. Who is currently responsible for decommissioning oil platforms and who pays for it now? It's the companies in the first place who are responsible for it. The worry here, the term that's being used is, is stranded liabilities, you know, that they're going to be costed and not covered, you know, that companies either are not able to, that maybe the money that has been put aside for this is not sufficient to cover this, that part of the cost is already going to be carried by the UK taxpayer or by taxpayers all over the world, really in the respective countries. And that so that that cost is is growing or, as I said, to some extent, uncertain how large it will it will be. Well, let's pick up on that. Um Andy, you weren't with us in the last episode, but we discussed the changing ownership of the North Sea oil sector. And there's this picture of a, a wave of owners now who are, who are in it for the money. They're there because it's going to get them some short-term profit and then they have no further interest in it. So I can envisage a scenario where somebody, a company, buys an oil platform, it runs it while it's profitable, and then it basically says, OK, I'm bored now, I'm off. Is can they just walk away? And what's to stop them walking away? And what's the risk of it happening, basically? And how do we stop it? So, so this is something quite rightly the OPRED, the environmental regulator, who are accountable for decommissioning, but also the North Sea Transition Authority and government have looked at it very closely. And actually, the NSA is pushing for this the new energy bill going through Parliament to have stronger powers around change of control to make sure that the right assets don't end up in the wrong hands, because that is potentially a real risk. What I would say, though, is that OPRED have got very helpful legislation that means that if, for example, Shell sells an asset to private equity, and then private equity take out the remaining oil and, and or gas reserves and then walk away, the liability goes back to Shell. So these majors need to be very careful. Who are they, who are they trading assets to? And I am aware, and in fact, when I was in industry, my, I decided not to trade some assets to some new companies because I felt that risk was too great and it would rebound on the company. So happily, there is some quite good legislation that does reduce that risk, but doesn't completely eliminate it, particularly for new developments. So it, it's very important. We have been doing, well, the NSTA have been doing a lot of work on decommissioning and actually got the, the cost down by 15 billion. And bearing in mind that the taxpayer through the way tax relief works through the fiscal regime, it's on the hook for about 40%. That's a saving of $6 billion to the taxpayer. My concern, though, is that with a disorderly transition, many of those savings would get lost. There would be a flood of decommissioning coming forward. Potentially, those risks we just talked about might materialize. We would also sterilize good assets that could be repurposed, for example, as hydrogen pipelines in the future. And we have a wealth of depleted reservoirs that make very good carbon stores. This again highlights why we need an orderly, well thought through managed transition. Okay, we're nearly out of time. Um, Giza, just 
to to sort of finish off, I just you've spent a lot of time thinking about this this you know this landscape and these stranded liabilities and this this these sort of risks. What do you think the big things are that politicians and the public need to understand about licensing in order to give us all the best chance of a good outcome here? I wanted to pick up on something that Andy said earlier, no, describing the licensing both as symbolic and as a red herring and just picking up on that. So the symbolism of the license is, of course, not just recognised by the activists, but also by the politicians. No? List Trust announcing kind of 100 new licences last year, Rishi Sunak emphasising or making a similar point earlier this year in July, I think, about you know, confirming his support for oil and, and gas licensing and the future of oil and gas extraction in the North Sea. So I think whilst it isn't all about licences and whilst I'm completely with Andy that there is already a lot of already licensed territory out there in the North Sea and those licences exist and will continue to exist. So just talking about new licences shouldn't be our only focus. That symbolism in, in itself, I think, is, is really important and also what it signifies. I think what we started our discussion with today, talking about the public good, what is this about, what is licensing actually for, but then also seeing that in that broader context of regulation as such. How is the licence really just a document that is embedded in a broader set of relationships that are being set up here between operators between the state, between citizens, and so on. So those those relationships are being redefined and the public good, I think that notion is really at the, at, the, at the heart of that, kind of what the public good is about, what the social benefits that come from that should be, is really important. So I think this kind of rethinking of that central objective of what do we actually want to do with the with the North Sea, with the resources that we have there, also maybe resources that we are not fully exploiting yet or just beginning to exploit is really important. And how do we achieve a balance between different kinds of benefits that can come um, from that? So not just economic benefits, but also redefining what the economic is all about and taking all of the costs into account that come with exploiting certain kinds of resources social benefits more broadly, but also what could be the benefit of not touching some of the resources that we have. So I think those are the kinds of questions that are really quite fundamental and that need to be rethought, not by us here today, but really are, you know, are things that Parliament needs to talk about. Andy talked about the citizen assemblies and where these need to be discussed, where a new kind of consensus or, or understanding of what this could mean into the future can be found. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Well, thank, and thank you to all four of our panellists for today, Giza, Andy, Gavin and Catherine. We've come to the end of this podcast, but do join us for the last in the series, the next one where we look at everything we've learned and deal with the big question, uh, what is the future of the North Sea and how do we decarbonise it in the most constructive way possible? So do join us for that. This was Tides of Transformation, an oil story. It was produced and edited by Isabella Soames. <laughs>